A baseball game, a day in a park with friends and family, fishing in a remote stream, work, travels, providing for loved ones, or heading out for adventures. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. The original Guide to Men's Health is presented by the Washington State Urology Society to help take you through the steps necessary to get the most out of life. If you have invested in a retirement plan for your future, why not invest in your body? After all, it makes better sense to retire healthy and enjoy your future. These podcasts are a guide for how to take care of yourself. If you take care of your car and maintain it, why not do the same for your personal machine in your body? If you know you should but haven't yet, the information in these podcasts contains some easy recommendations for where, when, and how to get started. Follow the podcast as we explore men's health with renowned experts and embark on a journey towards better health. this episode of the original guide to men's health we're fortunate to have dr. Maurice Garcia dr. Garcia is the associate professor of urology at Cedar Sinai Center Los Angeles he's the associate professor of urology in residence he's an associate professor of urology adjunct in the Department of Urology and Department of Anatomy at the University of California San Francisco and he is currently the director of Cedar sinai Transgender Surgery and Health Program. Dr. Garcia completed medical school at Georgetown University. He completed his residency in urology and fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco, and then did further fellowship training in transgender surgery in London, UK, at University College London Hospital. Dr. Garcia, welcome. Thank you very much, Dr. Pellman. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's first look at, obviously, LGBTQ health is huge, and you are at one end of the spectrum as a reconstructive surgeon. Before we go to the particulars of gender reconstruction, let's just talk about who might be in the population that would be of interest to hear more about that. Sure. A lot of the genital work that we do and sexual medicine work we do in traditional urology falls under the rubric or the heading of men's health. What's interesting about this field is that we have patients who, transgender women who were born male or assigned the male sex at birth, but who identify as women. And we have patients who were born female, assigned the female sex at birth, but who identify as male. And we have to make genitals for both of them and care for the sexual function and sexual health needs of both populations. And then within that group, many of these transgender men and women, as well as gender non-binary individuals, also within this population, many patients have a diversity of sexuality. Some patients will have partners who are of the same sex, some patients will have partners who are of the opposite sex, and some patients will have partners who are of either sex or both sexes or partners who don't identify with either gender. My patient population, that is transgender and gender non-binary people, really fit well into the LGBTQ spectrum. They, they comprise the entire spectrum. And uh, I think that uh, within traditional urology, one could argue that they certainly benefit from a lot of the expertise and care that we provide as part of traditional, quote-unquote, men's health. I just think we need to broaden the definition and broaden the umbrella of 
So when we look at a uh, population who in the past may not have been able to find resources available, we now have the ability for a population who are in need to find care, but not only care, but expert care. And where would somebody who is listening to this who's saying, oh, you know, I, I don't know where to go, how would they start? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I guess put another way is how do, or one way of putting it is how do, is understanding how patients find me and people that do what I do surgeons like me. So a lot of these patients come from, are referred to surgeons by their LGBTQ health center. It's a typically community organizations that offer resources and some, some limited medical care and hormones and medications and lab tests and so forth. Um, others are referred to surgeons by their primary care doctors if they see a lot of transgender patients. Um, or their endocrinologists, uh, if their hormone cross-sex hormone management is managed by endocrinologists. Honestly, a lot of the care, a lot of the patients that we see get their care and their services, for that matter, by word of mouth. I think it's fair to say that the transgender community, both in the United States and abroad, is very connected by social media. It makes sense. Historically, they didn't have clinics to go to or, you know, specialty clinics or anything like that. So they looked out for each other and communicated on social media or online, referring each other to, to good practitioners and good services. I know in the pediatric group where we talk about uh, gender reassignment, a lot of that is uh, congenital adrenal issues, pediatric specialists. It's a committee. Uh, one person doesn't walk in with a child and say, we need to change the sex of this child. For the adult population, it must be a process. Uh, somebody hears about you, somebody finds you, but what process do they actually go through? And is there a committee? They have to be pre-evaluated before they even consider surgery. Take us through. It's got to be a step-by-step -step issue. There is a, a process by which to evaluate patients to make sure that they're ready to go to undergo this phase of transition. So gender transition typically starts with social transition that is living progressively more full-time to ultimately full-time in the gender role that they identify with. So that means not only dressing but presenting as someone from the gender that they identify with um, and, and being addressed by correct gender pronouns, dressing, etc. Sort of really, and this is full-time, not just, you know, at nights or on weekends, but full-time life in their gender. That's social transition. Another phase of transition, and it sometimes happens before social transition, sometimes after, or sometimes concurrently, is a transition with use of uh, hormones of the gender that they identify with, so cross-sex hormone therapy. Um, and these two things are both requirements uh, for, for a patient to be ready to undergo genital surgery. Genital surgery, as you can imagine, is irreversible. We remove anatomy permanently, uh, anatomy that can't be put back, and th these surgeries affect hormone function as well. These requirements are in place to help, it, to, to help encourage and require people to, to, to experience life in the gender that they identify with as fully and as completely as possible uh, before they commit to irreversible 
surgeries or, or treatments, which makes sense. Uh, these guidelines, and they're, they're guidelines, although a lot of governing bodies such as Medicare and Medicaid and many commercial insurance companies adopt these as requirements, th- these, these guidelines slash requirements for readiness for surgery come from the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, uh, WPATH. WPATH, as you may know, is the leading national and international uh, healthcare organization focused on transgender medical health and surgery, uh, including surgery. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, multidisciplinary uh, organization that is evidence-based um, and evidence and research-focused to promote evidence-based you know, medicine and, and, and health policy and care guidelines uh, for, for uh, transgender people. So they came up with the, the standards of care guidelines. The last version um, uh, is version 7. That can be found online. And that lists the requirements that people should meet before they undergo surgery. So to recap, for surgery, someone has to have lived in the identified with gender for at least a year and have been taking hormones of the gender that they identify with for at least a year. And they also need two surgery referral letters. These are letters from mental health providers who are effectively referring the patient to the surgeon for their surgery. Uh, These referral letters do not, quote unquote, recommend surgery, but rather they speak to the patient's readiness for surgery. uh, And they speak to the patient's meeting the WPATH standards of care guidelines criteria for surgery, which I've just mentioned. These got these requirements include other other f- factors such as uh, you know a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So this isn't uh, that's what distinguishes all that we do from cosmetic surgery or something like that. That's what makes it medically necessary. These letters from mental health providers should also speak to other facets of the patient's readiness for surgery, such as do they have stable housing? Do they have the means by which to, to in a, from a practical standpoint, undergo surgery and present for follow-up and self-care? Um, do they live in an environment where they can safely take care of themselves? For example, after vaginoplasty, patients need to dilate and douche. So if they're living in a single-room occupancy with a public bathroom, that's not going to work. So these are some of the things that we as care providers have to work together to identify prospectively and make sure that those, you know, these that patients don't have barriers to self-care after surgery uh, before we do the surgery. Um, I should also add that you know these these guideline requirements, such as a year of social transition and a year of hormone therapy, they're they were they are presented by WPATH as guidelines, not as strict black and white laws. There are certain circumstances where patients can't always meet these guidelines, and those should not preclude such patients from having surgery. And that's uh, an example would be someone who lives in a in a social environment where they can't socially transition part of the way or gradually before surgery, for example. It's not safe for them. Uh, or people who don't, can't afford hormone therapy or don't have access to it where they live. 
you know, certain allowances have to be made for real life. You know, people live in different parts of the country. They live in certain situations politically and economically where some things aren't possible. And that's exactly where the surgery referral letters from mental health providers help articulate the need for such allowances so that patients like that aren't, who really do meet criteria, aren't denied important care like surgery because they don't meet certain criteria to the letter of, of you know, to the T. Again, the goal of guidelines and pre-surgery evaluation is just to, to identify people who, on some fundamental level, aren't really ready for this sort of irreversible part of gender transition. And people who are people who have mental health issues that where they're not really sort of thinking about it correctly and, and stably. So. so it's a team, and you have alluded to uh, mental health professionals, and I, previously you mentioned endocrinologists. Uh, who else is involved in the team? Gender-affirming surgery is a broad category. That includes genital gender-affirming surgery, but includes other types of surgery, facial surgery, tracheal shaving or hyoid bone surgery uh, for transgender women, chest surgery, um, breast augmentation or mastectomy for trans men, um, as well as genital surgery. And uh, there are even other surgeries. Colorectal surgeons need to be involved for some things. Uh, etc. So there are lots. Gynecologic surgery is another good example of a domain uh, that's integral to to uh, gender affirming surgery. Um, so a, a good program. If the question is what does a complete program look like, then uh, it would be a program that has surgeons from all of these different disciplines that can offer care. Not all patients avail themselves of all of these types of surgeries. Some patients don't even want genital surgery. For them, the most important thing is voice surgery or chest surgery or facial surgery. Others only want genital surgery. So it's, it's really a mixed, it's a mixed bag. Um, but a good comprehensive program offers surgery as well as medical and mental health services that cover all potential needs for transgender patients. And it should be an interdisciplinary program where providers kind of work together and consult one another and so forth. In the community, there's a lot of, there are a lot of very good surgeons that only do, you know, private practice types situations or single specialty practices. And um, many patients get great care for them, but then it's on the patient to seek care from a different surgeon for a different type of service. and ideally hope that their surgeons communicate with one another and when necessary. It's not always necessary, but sometimes when there are complex medical issues uh, or surgical issues, it's actually very much to their benefit that their care team communicate. You have a center with integrated care, and one of the advantages of going to a center of excellence that does this is the integration. The other is the volume and the outcomes. Um, this is not casual surgery. I'm so impressed by your lecture today. I remember back when I started practice some of the early surgery, and the results are incredible now compared to what was done. Uh, it's obviously a specialty that has grown, but as part of that, um, you know, for somebody who is going to look towards having a successful outcome, they're probably looking towards having somebody who's done extensive training, and you've done training beyond training in this. Go through that a little bit. Sure. Well, th thank you very much. Um, uh, 
I, th- I think you're I think you're uh, highlighting an important topic, which is centers of excellence. Um, I think that something that a center of excellence can offer, uh, or a high volume center, typically in academic centers, but there are some sort of quasi-academic or fully academic hospital centers like Cedar sinai is, a, is a, we're not a university, but we're an academic medical center with, you know, residency and fellowship training, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, et cetera. Whatever the definition is, centers that, that are large and multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary have large, have a diversity of providers. I think, as you say, number one, they often have high volume and you do want providers with an ex- with experience for handling not just the quote-unquote primary surgery, but providers that are skilled and have the experience of managing some of the very diverse and complex complications that can arise from surgery. As you say, these aren't easy surgeries, and the best surgeons in the world have a lot of complications or have have big complications, and they're hard to manage. And these um, tertiary care centers or centers of excellence uh, you know, are often the referral destination for such patients, perhaps possibly because sometimes some complications require care not just from someone from one discipline, but multiple disciplines to manage the problem and help the patient uh, through with that. So I think those are advantages of um, centers of excellence and, and reasons for them. Let's look towards a patient perhaps who isn't really interested in surgery, but wants to have something done that would fulfill a need sort of cosmetic change or a cosmetic appearance, would your center still be appropriate? Yes. The care we provide, it's for the whole person and, and different facets of, I guess, what you could call sexual medicine. And that is not just creating new genitals, but first understanding people's sexual function needs or their sexual health needs, and then sort of coming up with with ideas and and uh, things offerings for them to meet those needs. So someone, for example, who, as you suggested, doesn't necessarily want genital reconstructive surgery to create, let's say, a penis, but rather wants to to present better in public by having something in their pants, so that their pants don't look so that they their bodies from the outside. Uh, through their pants don't look devoid of normal male genitals. Uh, people like that will, in, in the transgender and, and gender non-binary community, will buy devices called packers. Packers are, are very soft latex. Effectively, they're copies of, of, of a penis. They come in different sizes, but they're a completely realistic soft latex penis that is is made expressly for the purpose of packing it into a man or an individual's underwear so that when they wear pants, they look, quote-unquote, normal from the outside, as any other man would. Um, Talking to patients, I think that part of the benefit of a packer is certainly filling that space uh, in their clothing, but I think the other perhaps even bigger benefit to the patient is more in their head, is knowing that, at least in public, they are physically intact, even if that means being intact with a prosthetic device that takes up space and is a filler, but at least they're, they're complete. They're not, in a sense, naked 
of from of the anatomy that they feel that they should have to be normal, uh, if that makes sense. Because uh, truthfully, you know, unless someone has ex exquisitely tight pants, you can't really tell uh, much of the outline of, of a person's, you know, a normal sized penis, which you know, in a flaccid state, we all know it doesn't occupy a whole lot of space. So I think realistically, it's not so much the, the visibility of the packer, but rather the, the reassurance of, of, of having intact genitals and an intact kind of normal and complete body for that individual that, that is of the greatest importance. And then a patient who has fulfilled the requirements of um, living the gender they choose for a year, been on hormone appropriate gender hormones for a year, received the appropriate counseling and uh, mental health uh, letters, now presents to your office. And you could take us through uh, male to female or female to male, but what expectations do you set for them as far as number of surgeries and the timeline? Let's take feminizing surgery, for example. If a patient, uh, a transgender woman, came to me uh, seeking that today, um, we would conclude the visit with, of course, during the visit we talk a lot and I get a lot of information and talk about the surgeries, the risks and benefits, but let's assume we've put all that behind us and the patient uh, concludes by saying, I want to proceed, when can we do this? So there's, a, there's an inherent timeline. First of all, they need to provide those two surgery referral letters. Very often they don't have them in hand. Uh, they need to be written within the, and dated within the last year before the, within the year of the surgery date. So those have to be current. Secondly, in general, all transgender people, uh, whether they're undergoing feminizing or masculinizing surgery, uh, need some degree of hair removal. Or a few exceptions. Uh, transgender women almost universally need some hair removal. Uh, they need, we use the skin of the penis shaft um, to make the back wall of the vulva uh, and uh, part, and the shaft, its shaft skin itself is used to make at least part of the vaginal canal. So if it's hair bearing, uh, it's not going to work well. Well, we don't want to make a vaginal canal with hair growing in it. That's not good for the patient. So almost everybody has some hair somewhere on their penis shaft. Um, they need hair removal. Now, if patients are circumcised, if a transgender woman is circumcised and she wants a vaginal canal, her penis skin shaft is not going to be enough skin. So she will need. We will need to harvest skin from her scrotum uh, or elsewhere on her body to construct a skin tube and then connect that skin tube to her existing penis skin uh, or tube of penis skin to make uh, a, a skin lining for her vaginal canal. That's the scrotum, as we all know, is almost always hair bearing. So she will need hair removal from that as well. So assuming she needs hair removal, hair removal of the genital area typically takes about a year. They're getting laser. Uh, anywhere from, from 9 to 12 months for laser permanent hair removal, or anywhere from 4 months to 1 to 2 years of electrolysis. Um, hair removal is a big, is an area of interest of mine. Um, it's very variable uh, depending on what modality is used. Um, um, so it takes time, but it's not quick. Uh, 
Uh, hair removal is done, treatments are typically done every six weeks or so uh, to allow the hair to grow through its hair growing cycle. Uh, and then the efficacy of each treatment, it's not complete, obviously. Some hairs survive and they have to be treated the next time and the next time and the next time. So uh, all in all, we're looking at several months at a minimum of hair removal. So she will need to get that done before I can see her for her surgery. Um, the other thing that should be accounted for, and different surgeons have different po uh, have their own policy about this, I ask patients to stop their hormone therapy for a few days before I want it fully washed out of their of their body so, uh, before we do the surgery. Specifically, estrogen uh, can pr can uh, facilitate or promote uh, deep venous thrombosis. So we ha I have them hold it for uh, five half lives of the m the estrogen formulation that they're using. If people inject estrogen, um, those injections are typically good for you know anywhere from two weeks to a month. So they need to stop their estrogen for a, a longer lead time before surgery. If they're taking pills, five days is usually sufficient. That that's enough half lives to make sure that we've gotten it uh, completely washed out. The added risk from estrogen for deep venous thrombosis, it's not a high risk, but it's not a zero risk. And there doesn't seem to be any point to me to uh, to assume unnecessary risk before surgery. So we ask them to uh, to hold it, and if it's for a short enough time, they can typically handle it okay without you know having any mental uh, effects or mood or anxiety related effects from it. Um, so let's review hair removal. So they need their surgery referral letters in order and submitted. They need hair removal almost always, and they need to stop their hormones. Um, and then, you know, let's, con let's remember that, you know, after surgery, they're going to be recovering for about six to eight weeks. Uh, you know, I'd say between six and eight weeks is when they kind of fully bounce back. Uh, yes, they can move around and their home and make a meal or care for themselves, but they're not fully back on their feet, certainly to go back to work or to do heavy lifting or some of the normal physically rigorous daily activities that some of us have to do. So I think people need to be given an opportunity to get their affairs in order, whether it's, you know, stocking up on groceries, arranging for friends or family to take turns to pop in and help out, uh, whatever these things may be, they need to arrange time for away from work. Um, we have to be patient with our patients and consider that they have, you know, their own complicated lives and work and work demands and so forth. So surgery scheduling takes a little bit of sensitivity and a little bit of time, but uh, that's roughly the window that I would expect for someone ready today, today uh, before they could actually undergo the surgery. And that's just one surgery in that case? Yeah. So, so most surgeons today... Uh, do vaginoplasty as a single-stage surgery. Um, I can only think of one that I know that does it in two stages. It is typically one stage. I do tell patients that they that there's about a you know five to ten percent chance that they're going to need an additional small revision surgery uh, after their surgery. It's typically outpatient. A couple of things that can happen: some skin might migrate anterior to their uh, to obstruct their vaginal canal opening, that and that's a little lip of skin that we can easily cut and close by a Heineke Micklets 
closure and get it out of the way. It's a short, out, simple outpatient surgery. They can get a similar obstruction of skin, uh, obstructing the, the urethral opening. That's also easily dealt with. But it's important to do those things because they drive quality of life and satisfaction. But they're small outpatient surgeries. So patients do, I remind them ahead of time to, you know, if something arises, they'll come in, we'll get it taken care of, and they'll go home the same day, and they may need to be off work for a couple of days. And uh, without doing another two-hour lecture, the um, results leave them with the ability to have orgasm, sexual sensation, and in some cases, they have successful orgasm with penetration. Sometimes it's not necessarily with penetration, uh, and you do create a clitoris. Correct. That's a great question because it's of such interest to all patients and people in general. Remarkably, with vaginoplasty, we can create a complete, I'll go as far as to say a completely sensate clitoris. Uh, and by complete, I mean, so if you use the word, if one uses the word complete, I think the, the standard to hold that statement is, well, does it work as well after surgery as, as it did before surgery? And what's interesting is that I've asked my patients that question for now a few years, and invariably people, patients will tell me, not only are, so my orgasms are as good as before surgery, half of my patients will tell me they're not only as good as, but they're actually better. And they'll qualify that when I sort of ask them more follow-up questions. They'll end up qualifying it by saying, okay, the sensation, the quality of the orgasm itself is probably the same. It feels just as good. But it, it, overall, it feels much better and more satisfying to me because I can actually enjoy an orgasm that I'm getting from my body that I love as opposed to the part of my body that for my whole life I've, I have found I've, I've been embarrassed by it. I don't like the look of it. I don't like to think about it. It's a reminder that I don't have the right body. So when patients get their right anatomy, they find it much more fulfilling. But the short answer is yes, that erogenous sensation from the clitoris that we make is outcomes are fantastic. So how do we do that? We elevate the neurovascular bundle from the penis, and then we fashion a small button-sized clitoris um, similar in size and shape and dimensions to a cis woman's clitoris. We make a, a homologue of that using a portion of the um, midline anterior coronal ridge uh, of the glands. That little bit of tissue from the glands is, uh, is in continuity with the neurovascular bundle, and we make a little clitoris and put it at the stump of the crura of the penis, which we've uh, oversewn. So effectively, her anatomy is normal cis anatomy. She has a clitoral shaft and a glans clitoris, which is what cis women have uh, as well. And that clitoris works quite well. What's interesting is that what I have found in my own research is that if you ask women what their erogenous sensation on their clitoris is after surgery, they'll all say, I can definitely feel it, and it definitely, it's, it's definitely obvious to me that it, it's pl a pleasurable sensation. But honestly, it took about three to four months before it, it felt pleasant versus partially unpleasant. So what they meant is that it's hypersensitive for the first three to four months. So it feels good, but it's, it's too much, and they don't really enjoy it because of the, the sort of the, the, uh, that hypersensitivity. But what I discovered is that if they stimulate 
just anterior to the clitoris, which is where I put the, the redundant portion of the neurovascular bundle, I lay it flat at midline. So it's basically tacked with one or two little stitches to the pubic symphysis prepubic area. If they stimulate their neurovascular bundle directly, they get what they describe as a fantastic, normal, just as good as always orgasm without the hypersensitivity of the, of the clitoris, the glands clitoris itself. Isn't that interesting? And, of course, the neurovascular bundle isn't laying outright. It's covered inside. It's covered by the new vagina. Correct. Specifically, the neurovascular bundle there is just covered by prepubic skin. And then in uh, the rehab portion of uh, recovery, you have a set of guidelines. So when would you say somebody is complete, sort of able to go ahead and function sexually and normally? Uh, what point would you tell them? Sure. So when are patients ready for sex? When are they, quote-unquote, done with their healing? I initially told people two months, and I've moved my the, the, the time after surgery at which I, I think it's okay to go ahead and start having receptive vaginal sex to three months after surgery. That's actually in line with a lot of science about wound healing. Three months is much closer to when wounds are virtually completely healed. We didn't know it, healing continues even after three months, but the vast majority of it is by about three months. I'll qualify that by saying, obviously, if someone's having stenosis issues of their vaginal opening or infections or anything else, it's not a good idea to start having receptive vaginal intercourse. But provided that they're doing well, which the vast majority are by th by two and certainly three months, they can go ahead and have it. The reason for my, the, the reason that I extended it to three months is because some of, um, I had a couple of patients get tears uh, in their vaginal canal with receptive intercourse, you know, at the two-month mark when they started. I think it's a good, a good point to remind people that you know, the one, imp one of the few differences between the vagina that we can make for someone as compared to a vagina that, that a woman is born with is that their vagina is, number one, not self-lubricating, um, the, the vagina that we make for them. So they have to use a copious amount of lubrication because it's just, it's lined by just skin, which is not, it's not naturally lubricated. And secondly, the vagina that we make for them it's really a thin layer of skin. If you look at, if you consider a penis skin, it's quite thin and it's very thin and delicate. That's effectively what they have inside. Uh, it doesn't have a thick muscle layer and all of the protective uh, anatomy that uh, a cisgender vaginal canal has. So I tell patients, you know, you can't, you can certainly have vaginal intercourse, but number one, use a lot of lube, and number two, don't adopt sexual positions or activities where your partner can his the, the penis or the toy that you're having sex with with your partner can come into your canal at a funny angle and tear it. It's actually entirely analogous to what we tell men who have Peyronie's disease or penile curvature. When you're having sex, don't assume angles where you can re-injure your penis by bending it. Uh, so it's pretty, again, there's not, there's, there's a certain universality to a lot of what we do, but those are important uh, reminders to patients. If we wanted then to look at the number of surgeries involved in female to male, it's more complex. Yes. We refer to those as, uh, as, as masculinizing surgeries. You know, as I mentioned earlier in my career, I used to refer to it as female to male and male to female just because that, 
from a surgeon standpoint, as we're learning this, it sort of it's the easiest way to keep it keep it in our heads. But I think good terms are are feminizing and masculinizing because you know patients when we talk publicly they'll they'll say they'll you know if, if I use that that the male to female or female to male they'll still sort of object and say I, I'm not changing to anything I am a male or I am a female. So, um, but we know what we're talking about. But with masculinizing surgeries, you're absolutely right, Dr. Pellman. Those are more complex, and those are typically staged, you know, multi-stage surgeries. So for, for masculinizing surgeries, um, men have a, an option of either undergoing metoidioplasty, which is where we make a small penis using the small penis that they already have. By that, I mean they're virilized clitoris structure, what used to be their clitoris. This is a good point in the conversation to remind listeners that, you know, we as surgeons and as, as healthcare providers want to use terminology that is culturally sensitive and, you know, gender affirming as opposed to dysphoria inducing. So men don't like to hear, you know, anatomy, anatomic terms that are very strictly female. So uh, it's just, it's, it's more pleasant to use gender-affirming anatomic terms. I I refer to their virilized clitoris as their micropenis. So we we can make, with metoidioplasty surgery, we can make a small, very male-looking penis from their micropenis. We eliminate the labia minora from the the terminus of the micropenis and release the suspensory ligament and, and basically refashion the skin so it looks more like a penis. The other option for them for masculinizing genital surgery is to is called phalloplasty, where we make a full adult-sized penis. Obviously, there's not enough extra skin down there to make something that's significantly bigger, so we import that skin as free or pedicled flat skin flaps from either the arm or the anterior thigh or the tummy. Some surgeons will do phalloplasty as a single stage. That's making the penis and the urethra. But remember, it's also a lot of other surgeries. So what is phalloplasty? It's not just making a penis and a urethra, but it's it's also very often eliminating, surgically removing the vaginal canal or closing it. It is making a scrotum from their their uh, genital, their existing genital anatomy. It's um, very often, not all surgeons offer this, but I do, it's eliminating the visibility of the clitoris. The micropenis, we don't, we don't, of course, don't remove it or cut it off, but we hide it from view because it's frankly a very feminine structure and it's a reminder of the old anatomy that they want to you know, move away from, and so we, but it, it's obviously very important, it has a very important function, so I'd epithelialize it and then bury it at the, in the subcutaneous space at the base of the, the big penis. I refer to that as transposition of the clitoris. We, we make kind of a glands or a head-like appearance on their penis and bring the urethra, their native urethral opening in continuity with their penis urethra, their phallus. Um, urethra. So that's a lot of surgeries all rolled into one term called phalloplasty. I believe that outcomes are a little bit better if we do it as a two-stage surgery. Um, Other surgeons do it in one stage, and some people have good outcomes in one stage. I I think in general, outcomes are probably better in two stages, but uh, we have to be honest, we need evidence-based studies to, to really back that up, and we don't have that now. In my hands, two-stage surgery works best. So what I do in the first stage is I'll make the penis and the urethra. 
uh, using skin from either their arm or their thigh and basically just make the penis and the urethra and then inset them where the penis belongs. The, um, the penis, uh, the phallus's urethra at that point will open up to skin located at the left base of their micropenis. The urethra doesn't see urine at all. They pee, and, and all anatomy for the, for the gentleman below the penis is whatever it was before surgery. And then typically four to six months later, I'll go back and I'll do second stage surgery. And second stage surgery is the following. It's vaginectomy. By then they've had their hysterectomy, of course. But vaginectomy, we eliminate the vaginal canal. It is urethral join up where we'll, I'll, a complex urethroplasty to join the native urethral opening to the, 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 the penis's urethra at the base of the penis. The third thing is complex scrotoplasty. So we'll fashion a nice scrotum from their labia majora, which is the natural homologue to the, in a genetic female, uh, it's the natural homologue to the scrotum in a genetic male. I'll eliminate the majority of the labia minora, which doesn't really have a place on a male scrotum. You know, the homologue of the labia minora on a man is the median raphae. So it's sort of not really there. Um, and then the fourth thing I'll do is I will, oh, transpose the clitoris. So move the clitoris, deepithelialize the entire clitoris, the glands and the shaft. And then move, I'll sew the, 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 the glands of the clitoris. I'll anchor it to the base of their phallus, just under the skin on the right, uh, on the right side. The right because that's the side that I typically uh, mobilize the vascular pedicle from. So everything's on that side. Um, and then the fifth thing is I'll do glansplasty, make a nice head-shaped appearance for the penis. Um, I should add that you know when I eliminate the, the, the clitoris's skin, that skin can be kept and mobilized as a flap to help with the urethroplasty joining their native urethral opening to their penis urethra. So everything gets used. Nothing is thrown, is really wasted with this nice surgery. But that's second stage surgery. And then typically we'll wait four to six months after that before doing a penile prosthesis surgery if that's what they'd like or and testicle prostheses. Not all patients want that. Penile prosthesis placement is always, always, always the last surgery because you don't want to do that in the setting of any infection or other wounds or other surgeries. And uh, both uh, surgeries void normally. They're able to utilize urethra in its appropriate anatomic position? Yes. Transgender women generally don't have any trouble with voiding. Uh, with one exception, they can get do a, have a little bit of spraying of their urinary stream. That spraying can be accounted by a couple of things. Number one, they may not have yet learned or taught themselves how to pee. We have to consider that they've never up until the morning that they are the catheter is removed, they've never peed through their through that anatomy that they ha now have. So they have to learn to sit on the toilet. I tell them to put their knees together a little bit and lean forward a tiniest bit, and that seems to work. But if it's not a positional uh, issue, then the other reason why they may spray is that it could be post-op swelling around the urethral opening. So by six or so weeks, that should resolve. And if it persists, it may be that there's a little lip of skin that blocks the stream as it comes out of the urethral opening. It just takes the littlest bit of any obstruction to disrupt the stream and make it spray. They'll usually complain of you know, their stream kind of hitting one of their inner thighs. And that's easily fixed uh, surgically if it's just a little bit of skin that's in the way. Uh, trans men, um, they will pee, as I said, after their first surgery, if it's a stage surgery, they'll pee through their 
you know, I don't want to say normal, but they're the same anatomy they've always peed through between the first and the second surgery because we don't really touch their urethra at the first surgery. But once they have their penis and once their phalloplasty surgeries are all complete and they're peeing from their new penis, I would say for that population, urination is a bit more fraught. Most, most of them pee fine. Um, most report a slightly slower stream than before because you know, a genetic, a, a transgender man's bladder is a bit more similar to a genetic woman's bladder. Women pee at a, at a lower pressure than genetic males. So I think there's already a lower pressure head to begin with. Plus, the, the added neourethra and all of that is, is sort of like a, almost like a muffler in an exhaust system. It does provide a little bit of passive obstruction to their stream. But as long as they can empty, it, it works well. Phalloplasty with urethral lengthening the Achilles heel of that whole surgery, all of the problems with phalloplasty can, are really centered around the urethra. We can make a nice penis, put prost- you know, do a million things. Making a good, good plumbing <laughs> from skin is just hard. Uh, it's subject to strictures and you know, fistulas and this and that. Most men do well, but there is a high complication rate and they need you know, additional urethroplasty surgery. But in most cases, we can get them avoiding uh, well but it may require additional surgery. That's why you're a urological surgeon. And I guess uh, just to emphasize, in a feminizing surgery, there's still a prostate in place, so we still screen for prostate cancer. That's a very good question. Yes, uh, we never, ever, ever remove the prostate with vaginoplasty surgery. There's really no reason to, uh, and there's only downsides to it. You know, the, the risks we all know as urologists of incontinence, um, and, and possibly with, you know, erectile function is not really an issue because they don't want erectile function post-surgery, but certainly incontinence and possibly some sensory nerve damage uh, could result from that. The other reason we don't do it is because the prostate and the bladder form the anterior, are the tissues anterior to the vaginal canal. So if we remove the prostate, there's just less to support the vaginal canal once it's in situ and is healed into place. So yeah, we don't remove the prostate. What we have found is that there are mainly anecdotal reports of transgender women uh, being diagnosed with prostate cancer. It definitely happens. There does not seem to be a very high incidence of prostate cancer in trans women, perhaps not surprisingly because they've, they've had their testicles removed at some point or have been on feminizing hormones and anti-androgens for a long, long time. Their prostates are typically smaller than a cis man's. And um, for people, especially nowadays, where young people start cross-sex hormone therapy even before puberty, let alone early in life, or in addition to early in life, their prostates are often very, very small. So the prostate is often not even an issue in terms of BPH or other things. But they do have prostates and they can get cancer. We don't have enough evidence-based data to really formulate guidelines about when we should start screening and how. I'm working on that. That's a subject of my research now. But until then, I take a more common sense approach. I tell women, there are certainly cases of people like you with prostate cancer. So let's not dismiss it entirely. Let's do screen, let's do digital exams. I can examine a woman's prostate through her vagina or transrectally if she's not had surgery or doesn't have a vaginal canal. And secondly, let's do uh, lab tests, you know, like we do you know, in for the cis male population until we have better data. It's a simple blood test that can be added on to your other tests. We should all note 
that if you check a PSA in a transgender woman, if she's been on hormones for a long time, it may be undetectable simply because it's a smaller gland and the PSA produced is below the limits of detectability. So it's, I think the sensitivity is, 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 is clearly questionable for that reason. But it's still, until we have better assays, it's still worth uh, checking. Um, and uh, until we have better data, we should just, you know, if they're committed to their health, uh, which they are because they're seeing me uh, or any other surgeon, uh, we should, uh, urologists should be the one to champion that part of, of their health. Plastic surgeons typically, when do they ever examine prostates or think about PSA levels? And primary care doctors, uh, it's not that they don't necessarily want to, but as we know for, from cis men, they don't always, uh, they always sometimes defer that to someone else like a urologist. So I think we really, for this population, should be the champion for prostate uh, screening. I uh, can't give visual record in a podcast, but um, the, the visual uh, that we had of outcomes was so superior to what I had seen, as I had mentioned earlier, from surgeries 20, 30 years ago. And before that, I'm not sure anything existed. So you have come up with eloquent solutions for our patients who are in need. And it's just been a pleasure interviewing you. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And you know what? I appreciate that. And I agree with you. We have come a long way. And I think we should give credit to the people that trained me and all the great surgeons before us. Because is you know what I've learned is I'm trying to build on, on the large amount of learning that I, I benefited from. But that's what I love about our field is that we have a lot of very thoughtful, reconstructive surgeons that have come up with all these answers, certainly before me. I've just, I'm trying to add a little, contribute a little bit to it and teach others, but thank you. And it has really been the goal to improve patient care. I agree. That, that's what we're here for, to make people's lives better and advance our field. Thank you. And thank you. This completes another podcast chapter of the Washington State Urology Society's original Guide to Men's Health. This is Dr. Richard Pellman reminding you to take care of yourself. The Washington State Urology Society wishes to thank all contributors who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The Society also wishes to thank Sean Fox for his invaluable technical assistance. Music theme, San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. Dave Whiting. The podcasts are the property of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the express consent of the Society is strictly prohibited. For more information about men's health, visit WSUS.org or visit your physician or care provider.